Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This is the best bits from my radio show on Talk Radio, featuring some truly badass women. This week, I talk about going back to the office and anonymity for domestic violence victims with broadcaster Nicola Thorpe. Meet author of Badly Behaved Women, the story of modern feminism, Anne-Marie Crowhurst. And learn about childlessness and how we talk about it with Pookie Pencil. Plus, author Caroline O'Donoghue joins us to talk about her new book, Scenes of a Graphic Nature. First up, though, it's Nicola Thorpe. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Now, lots of firms out there went into lockdown saying we will come out of lockdown uh, only when we're ready, that we won't do anything until it's safe. We're going to put social distancing measures in place. Uh, And also, you can kind of have the summer at home, but we want you back for September. Slightly like a school year gone awry. And of course, lots of parents out there desperate to get back to the office, so need to put their kids in school. But do you want to go back? Really? If you've been working from home, what's it going to be like going back to an office that feels very different? Here to talk to me about that is broadcaster and actress Nicola Thorpe. Hi, Nicola. Hi, Harriet. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. So tell me, why do you think so many companies set a sort of arbitrary back in September deadline for this? And what should employees do if they don't feel comfortable going back to the office? It's such a confusing one, isn't it? I mean, I think that the the deadline, as it were, for September, it needed to be something tangible, something that felt at least like it was in this year. But actually what a lot of companies are doing, like Google, for example, are saying to their, uh, to their employees not to actually expect to return to the office until 2021, which just seems so bizarre, doesn't it? It doesn't even feel like we've had a year. Well, I don't know about you. I agree. But I mean, I think the thing that sort of worries me about that is, if it's literally you're not going back to the office until 2021, the question then surely has to be asked, do you need to go back to the office at all? Ever. Yeah, and forecasters, I read a forecast today from the Centre of Economic and Business Research, and they uh, suggested that more than 10 million Britons, so that's a third of the walk, the workforce sorry, in the UK, they will work from home after the pandemic. 10 million. I mean, I have worked for many, many employers who felt that the second you asked to work from home, in quotes, that was essentially the start of you showing that you weren't committed to your job. And yeah, loads so you of were my slacking. friends. Yeah, loads of my friends feel that, particularly female friends who may be in the run up to a pregnancy was just mm-hmm. sort of trialing, maybe doing two days working from home. But the general consensus seems to be that most people are just as, if not more, productive when they can work from home. Like I, I'm a freelancer, so I, I do work from home most of the time, obviously, except for when I'm acting or broadcasting when I, mm-hmm. I have to be in the studio. Um, but on the, the days where I do write or work from home, you know, I, I love going out. I love going to a coffee shop maybe to change mm-hmm. the scenery a bit. So I can imagine people going maybe a little stir crazy, especially if they've got kids who are not back to school yet. Do but you... ultimately, mm. sorry, go on. Oh, no, go on. Ultimately. No, I was, I was just thinking ultimately, you know, everyone's chatting about the the economic impact of uh, the secondary businesses, as it were, in the city. So mm-hmm. restaurants, cafes. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that's such a major concern. But on the flip side, we should be looking at the places maybe in the commuter belt around London where there are cafes that might be more populated now. Yeah. And they will have, they'll be 
having an increase in, in their footfall, which I think is only a positive thing. And maybe we just don't need that many prets in London. I mean, I have to say, I went to my local pub the other day, which is usually empty because I live in a sort of, and not an office-based place. I live, you know, in quite a kind of commuter place. Right. And usually you go to, I work from home as well. Usually I go to my pub and it's completely empty until at least 8 p.m. And even then it doesn't get that busy. And it was packed. I was actually mildly annoyed. Um, <laughs> Kirsty Allsop tweeted this week, if your job can be done from home, it can be done from abroad where wages are lower. If I had an office job, I'd want to be first in the queue to get back to work and prove my worth to my employer. I'm terrified by what could be on the horizon for so many. Do you think she has a point? Yeah, I think maybe she does have a point. I've got I've got a few friends who work in the city and they were sort of in, in, in casual conversation saying that employers in their industries were keen to actually give or negotiate salary increases for the staff who were coming into the office, oh, almost wow. behind the back. Yeah, almost behind the backs of the, the staff who were still working from home. Because obviously, they've got a case, haven't they? Mm-hmm. They're like, look, I'm actually coming in. I'm, I'm putting in the extra commute. commute. Yeah, more hours. And I'm actually, more hours. I'm physically here in the office. So if you don't give me a salary increase, they've just got some, some more leverage there, uh, which I think is an interesting angle. But I wouldn't be too happy if I was an employee doing the same amount of work at home. But then again, you're saving on commute costs. You're saving on, you know, maybe lunch that you would buy in the city. So there's it swings and roundabouts. Mm, really interesting. Nicola, I wanted to talk to you about an article that you uh, wrote this week about anonymity for domestic violence victims. And it's a petition mm-hmm. that's going around. And it's asking for the courts to grant the same level of anonymity to domestic violence victims as they would to rape victims. Tell us why that's important. So for listeners who don't know, if if somebody reports a sexual assault or a sexual crime, then uh, court reporters or any journalist, uh, they don't have the right to publish their name or any details that could identify them. But that isn't the case for victims of domestic assault or domestic violence and I don't really understand why because you'd see cases where women would come forward about an abuser and often the stigma that is attached to domestic violence as with sexual assaults you know the idea that maybe women or men mm-hmm. as well would not be believed I speak and speak to and work with a lot of men who just feel like they would be judged for coming mm-hmm. forward to say that a female partner had assaulted them now at the moment there's nothing stopping journalists or publications from printing their names, their ages, and their addresses. And I think that that needs to stop. How could we, um, ha- can we actually really implement this? So we can ask journalists not to do it, and we can mm-hmm. do as we would with the named a rape victim, for example. But mm-hmm. you can't really guarantee anonymity, can you? You, know, you if somebody's in the court and they know and they pass it on and it's on social media particularly in this day and age where people can put things on twitter and it's gone round before twitter gets a chance to hopefully delete it to get rid of it no you, you can't necessarily stop members of the public but what you can do is bring in measures like with uh, victims of sexual assault in court so we're talking putting up a screen so that they are not being they're not seen physically um to have the name redacted or have um a a kind of alias or a generic like Jane Doe style name being used in court and that's where you stop it from leaking is in the courtroom itself I just think it's so important to to support victims who go through such a difficult time in even talking about being a victim of domestic abuse like it happened to me and this is one of the things that spurred me to set up this petition was that when I, I did report the, um, the incident to the police and they took it very seriously, eventually, because unfortunately I, don't, I think some officers maybe didn't go through the uh, required level of training to, to really empathise with a victim. But then when it came to pressing charges, I was informed that, you know, I would be named and that there might be certain press interest in me being named as well because I have a public profile. Mm. And that terrified me because... I knew that forever my name would appear in a Google search alongside the name of my abuser. Mm. And that wasn't something that sat very well with me. And not only was the assault itself obviously a a horrific experience, but it's the after effects of it as well. Because you want to be able to tell people it's so important that you do open up and and talk about your experiences. And, And hopefully that will be listened to by people who are empathetic, but sometimes they're not. 
And sometimes they can use that information um, to almost add to the stigma that you feel in your own, your own mind. And to have that existing in eternity on Google, mm. uh, particularly, let's face it, if the, um, the abuser gets let off, because so often in these cases, there's insufficient evidence. As much as the CPS might feel that they have a case, it might not go their way in court. And then you've got a case where the alleged abuser or the abuser in this hypothetical you know, scenario is found not guilty of something that they did do, but could not be proven to do. So you have to think then, well, what, how is the victim going to feel? That they've been named as a victim of domestic assault domestic violence and their abuser's been found not guilty so they are then viewed as somebody who's made it up and and i think that if we were to bring in this these this anonymity legislation for victims of domestic violence then that would reduce the chance of that happening what do you think about people who say we should bring in anonymity not just for the victims or accusers but also for those who have been accused because you're innocent until proven guilty and if your name gets linked with something etc etc it's a really tough one and that's one that I've mulled over for years actually because I don't really know where I stand on it. I can see the benefits in that if an abuser is named publicly then other people could come forward and there could be proof there of a pattern of behaviour which means that there's a higher chance of conviction. Mm-hmm. But also by naming an abuser, um, again, you, you run the risk of identifying the victim at the yeah. same time. Um, and then also you've got cases whereby somebody a high profile person but even even a low pro somebody with no profile because we we all have social media profiles now yeah. we're all googleable mm-hmm. we're all online sadly so yeah. <laughs> sadly so but then you, you might have an instance so this is again a hypothetical which maybe isn't helpful to to draw from but it's the mm-hmm. only thing i can use in this scenario hypothetically a man uh, sexually assaults a woman and he's named in the press and yeah. it goes to press and then he's found not guilty mm-hmm. people in the future like i have used dating sites in the past whatever and when i've found somebody's real name i will do a google search absolutely i think we all do yeah i think we all do that so there is um there is a, a real benefit to doing that because obviously mm-hmm. if somebody's name comes up in a, a case like this it can make you think twice about you know maybe pursuing a date with them but then also if they're found not guilty it it doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't capable absolutely Mm. and this is also the thing to remember which if somebody is found not guilty what we're saying ultimately is this person didn't do it and then if every time they're on a dating site and somebody googles them and they come up with their name saying or they were accused of rape but found not guilty Mm -hmm. i mean potentially as you say potentially that was somebody who actually was guilty and we are saving a lot of women but also potentially they're not and they are being tarred with that for the rest of their life yeah um so i i I think about it all the time i think Mm. do you know what i'm not necessarily against anonymity for for abusers i I think there has to be made a really really strong case that evidentially it helps the cps to press charges um and whether that's the case at the moment i i I don't know i really Mm. don't know what would you like um you've obviously started a petition about it we know that if we get a certain number of signatures on a petition i can't remember how many off the top of my head uh it goes to parliament to be debated um what would you like parliament to like to do from this do you want them to just say actually yeah it's an obvious win let's just put it into legislation i mean that would be great but it's not Mm. actually what it, what we can learn from so what happens is if you get ten thousand um signatures then the, uh, parliament will give a response the government sorry will give a response if yeah. you get over a hundred thousand signatures they will then debate the topic um, or they might go into a parliamentary inquiry which is what happened with a, a previous petition of mine that i mm. set up a few years ago now the benefits of that inquiry is they look into the detail and they look at um victim statements they look at evidence statistics around okay why do we need to change this legislation what other things can we do and obviously with um the domestic violence amendments to the domestic violence bill coming through all of this year i feel like now is the time to add this extra bit of legislation to the domestic violence bill 
Mm, great great timing I love that I think it's brilliant timing <laughs> <laughs> Nicola I really hope it gets through um, you can find probably the easiest thing to do is find Nicola on Twitter you'll find the petition on her Twitter handle there do go if you think it could be helpful and I genuinely do I think she raises an incredible point which is that imagine being somebody who has been abused by a former partner and every time you google your name it comes up next to theirs you can never escape them this is a simple way to ensure that doesn't happen. Uh, if you think anonymity for domestic violence victims is important, please, please go sign the petition. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, let's get back to our guest. Now, I don't know if you, any of you have been watching the BBC show Mrs. America, which looks at the fight of traditional standards versus first wave feminism in the States in the 60s. Um, but it really made me think of my next guest and her new book. Anne-Marie Crowhurst is the author of Badly Behaved Women, The Story of Modern Feminism. Hi, Anne-Marie. Hello, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, why did you want to write the story of modern feminism? Well... I think we know lots about the suffragettes, mm. but I think what's less easy to find on the bookshelves is an overview of feminism in recent times, like feminism in pop music, architecture and fashion. Um, and I just felt like it's such an amazing time for feminism at the moment that it was a good point to have a look at how far we've come as women and celebrate what we've achieved. Did you find when you were writing it that there were women who were celebrated as feminists in their time and now perhaps we are more divided on? I'm thinking that sort of the, the most infamous of all those has to be Jermaine Greer, celebrated feminist of the 60s and 70s, and now everyone goes, oh, some, some views we're not sure we agree with in feminism, we don't know. Has feminism changed and have we had to let go of some of our heroines? I mean, I, I think in a way, yes. I mean, feminism... I think is is a very broad term for something that's uh, a broad church. Mm -hmm. And even today, there are so many uh, different ways of looking at feminism. And obviously, as you say, there are people like Jermaine Greer who have certain views and others who hold opposing views. And there's room for all of those people mm -hmm. within feminism. Um, one of the fun things about doing my research was discovering all those different aspects, that there's feminism uh, for queer women, there's feminism for body positive women, mm -hmm. there's feminism for every kind of woman if you want to find it. So I don't think we necessarily have to let go of our heroines. I think it's about making room for everyone and agreeing to disagree on certain <laughs> topics. <laughs> Do you think that in a way has been both feminism's triumph and maybe the bit where we get stuck, which is I sometimes feel like 
when feminism gets a bit too powerful the patriarchy for want of a better word let's call it the patriarchy (laughs) kind of goes i know what we'll do we'll pit the women against each other yeah i mean and this is a particular problem in Mm. present times with social media where many prominent feminists and women who speak up about issues tend to be trolled or attacked on social media um, but then again, I think that people have always tried to find ways to undermine women. I mean, even going back to the suffragettes and the first women of the women's lib movement in the 70s, um, stories were being run in the press um, that were pitting women against each other. So I feel like it's kind of always been the same. It's just that at the moment it's particularly visible because of the Internet and social media. When you were doing your research, who were some of the women that really caught your eye? Oh, it's so, I mean, the thing that that really stood out to me was the number, the sheer number of women all over the world who have stood up and said, you know, we're not going to put up with this in in our own, in our own way. Um, I suppose people that stood out were uh, some of my contributors, actually. Um, Helen Pankhurst Mm -hmm. wrote about being part of the the Pankhurst family and carrying on the tradition of protest. Uh, since the suffragettes, but also amazing women like Gloria Steinem, who uh, spent the 70s um, and 80s and beyond campaigning for women's rights. Um, And in the same time, Florence Kennedy, Mm. who was an incredible black woman who wanted to put out there that there was a kind of intersectional feminism that was perhaps being overlooked. Um, The artist Judy Chicago, who was enormous in the 70s for her amazing feminist artworks I mean there are just so many there are so many in there (laughs) it was lots of fun to discover them and feel really inspired by them did you when you were writing it did you have a target audience in mind was this book aimed at perhaps young feminists today who maybe and I, I feel old saying this but sometimes I feel like the young women I meet don't really understand some of the history of feminism they don't understand some of the things that uh had to happen in order for them to be able to talk and protest about things they're talking and protesting about now? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, it's aimed at any woman who's interested Mm. in uh, modern feminism, uh, where we were and where we've come to, the 70s, 80s, 90s and 2000s are sort of the particular focus. And I suppose for me, I was a teenager in the 90s, so I perhaps would enjoy those chapters but not need to know that as much. Um, For modern-day feminists, I'm sure they know all about the things I've written um, about feminist comedy and the reclaiming of body hair, Mm. uh, the Women's March. Um, So I think depending on what era you grew up with, there's information for you to find out about the other eras that perhaps you're not (laughs) as familiar with. You say you were a teenager in the 90s, so was I, which was the era of girl power. And yes. really, yes, for want, of, want of a better way, sort of feminism as consumerism, I think, you know, yeah. what can we, um, what can we kind of sell to women as, as girl power and empowered? I kind of look at it now and I, I'm incredibly grateful for that era. I, I think it was, it taught us a lot. It made women distinctly more shouty and more, uh, less inclined to sit back and be wallflowers, much more inclined to have their voices out there in the front. But it wasn't all perfect. It also still very much put kind of how women looked at the forefront, still made it very much all about women's relationships, still made it very much all about women's sexuality in a very disempowered manner. Do you think that uh, there is an era where you felt when you looked at it, you were like, this is this is a feminism which was really pure and really nailed it without the benefit of hindsight looking at it and being like, oh, you really tried, but all that bit. Yeah, I mean, I think you could probably say that about most, I mean, yeah. most eras when, you, when you've when you had time yeah. um, to consider it in, in, the full, in the fullness of time, you can see um, problems with every sort of generation or every wave. I mean, personally... I love the 90s because, like you, I discovered lots of powerful women in music. Um, I was just a little bit too young for Riot Girl, which I write about in the book. Mm -hmm. And as you say, Girl Power came after that um, and and did co-opt that idea. But at the same time, I do think it's interesting to consider that those messages you were talking about that the Spice Girls put out, women can do anything, Mm -hmm. sisterhood is important, we should celebrate our mums. 
could have kind of created the wave of feminism we're in now as those yeah. little girls who were Spice Girls fans have become the women who go on the women's march and who who resist essentially and who are the big agents of change now that are taking up the baton so I think you could probably say there are problems with every era but although there were with the 90s I think yeah. equally that message did hit home like you say for you and lots of other girls yeah. that you know, women could have power, even though it's a bit simplified to, to just yeah. say, girl power. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, your book's called Badly Behaved Women. It feels to me now a little bit like actually being a feminist now is being a well-behaved woman, that it's almost uh, more controversial as a woman or um, yeah, as a woman to say, I'm not a feminist. What do you think yeah. of that? Yeah, I... I I suppose that would that would be badly behaved. I mean, the title is taken from um, that phrase, well-behaved women seldom make history. Mm -hmm. And it's because I was looking at things that the suffragettes did, um, that women in the 80s did, the women of Green Common, uh, women nowadays, and all the uh, large things they've done that kind of mess with the This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on um, Badass Women's kind Hour. Of symbolic behaviours that were sort of, you know, against what the idea of women is, of, mm. of sitting down and, and knitting and talking about kittens. Um, <laughs> but you're right, I suppose, I suppose saying you're not a feminist could be considered quite rebellious. Um, I think you've got to get your kicks where you can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. What, if anything, were some of the lessons or perhaps some of the themes that you saw go through all of these badly behaved women? Um, I, I think the lessons are really never give up. I mean, in some ways, it's a little bit depressing to look back at 120 years and think that, you know, we're still struggling in certain areas. There's still a pay gap. Um, that we're still underrepresented on the board of Fortune 500 companies and in politics, STEM subjects. But on the other hand, um, the things that we have achieved are incredible um, in terms of reclaiming all sorts of amazing things that were negative, like mm -hmm. body hair, period pride, um, reproductive rights, abortion rights, all of those things. I feel like we have done a lot and we should be proud of ourselves. We absolutely should. Anna-Marie, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, Badly Behaved Women, Story of Modern Feminism is out now. It's the most beautiful book. You just, It's one to have on your coffee table. I absolutely loved it. Um, so I thoroughly recommend. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, let's get back to our guest. Anyway, hiya. You must be cooking me dinner again. I'm all right, fine. Business as usual, really, i.e. none. It just goes on and on, doesn't it? It's not like anyone's taking any notice anymore, though at least you could get into Sainsbury's in under an hour today. I was standing by the loos, deciding whether to indulge in a cheeky grazia when I could hear all this ants laughing. And that is the start of a new one-woman monologue called Empty. It's written by Pookie Kensal, actress, and it's about the issue of childlessness in our society, particularly, uh, well, in this world where post-COVID-19, we're not sure how... IVF and fertility procedures are going to proceed. Joining us now to talk about it is Pookie Kent-Snell. Hi, Pookie. Hi there. Can you tell us what inspired you to create the monologue? Well, when COVID basically shut down the entertainment industry, a lot of actors, there was this kind of spontaneous outpouring uh, by actors of uh, self-penned monologues and little scenes on the internet which was a kind of response to the helplessness that everybody felt. And I'd been doing um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in Bristol, and it was shut down overnight. Mm. And um, the play is about, written in the 60s, about a couple, George and Martha, who don't have a child and who have these terrible games that they play to cope with it. And so it was very much in my mind still, because suddenly we'd stopped the play. 
And um, the character of Martha's always played. She's played by Elizabeth Taylor in the film. And she's always played as this drunken harridan. But when I read the play, I was struck by how, uh, in fact, she just says a few critical things about her husband, George, <laughs> and the, the play just dissolves into this punishment of Martha. And I thought, mm. why is she being punished? And I thought, oh, because she doesn't have any children. And then I remembered this incident that happened in the Ladies Lose at Sainsbury's a few years ago, and I'd always meant to write about it. So I thought, right, let's see. I'll sit down and see what happens. And the monologue came out. What was the incident? Well, I was just in the Lose in Sainsbury's, <laughs> and I heard all this laughing in the, one of the cubicles, and I knew it was a few girls, and I thought, oh, right, what's going on? But I just was washing my hands, and then they, all, they, they suddenly stopped laughing. It went very quiet. And then they kind of shuffled out one by one. And then this girl just held out her hand. And there was a, she said, uh, do you think this is positive? And it was a pregnancy test. And so I just thought, oh, wow, that's amazing. You just expect to go to the losing Sainsbury's and, <laughs> and see that. And that's really the incident that kind of um, is the basis of the monologue that I wrote. Why do you think, we are as a society still so interested in whether or not women have children I think it's possibly it goes back to well it's a it's a very very basic instinct it's a, a biological imperative to procreate and so, uh, and it's also a societally programmed in us. We, when, you know, from being two, people hand us dolls and we just mm. think, oh, I'm going to have a child. So that when people don't, it's, it's perceived as, as not right somehow or, or, or other. So I think um, we still find it difficult in society to kind of accept it as a norm, which it is, um, whether it's people who have chosen not to have children or people who leave it too late or people who are in same-sex relationships. Uh, I think it, it's not been talked about enough and that's why it's still an issue. How did you, when you were preparing to play Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, how did you start to interpret her mindset as a childless woman in a play set in a time when it was almost the worst thing you could be as a woman. Yeah, that's true. I did a lot of research around the period, and actually IVF had just started to be developed as a possibility, but it wasn't properly available. I think you could have IUI, but you couldn't have IVF. Um, and it may be um, Albie knew about this, and, and he had it in his mind when he was writing the play. I just, um, I always, when I'm doing a character, I kind of make the life of the character in my imagination because I don't really like to draw on my own, uh, what's the word, emotional memory yeah. bank. I like to create the memory bank of the character. So I did that. But I didn't play her like she's always played. I was very clear in the audition that I thought it's a misogynist play mm. and that Martha was being punished. And I wanted to play it like I Actually, if you analyse the text, it's a coercive, coercive control relationship where, um, well, it, it's, that's what's great about the play, actually, when you go about go and see it. Everybody's arguing, it's him, it's her. No, it's her <laughs> fault, it's his fault. Uh, so, uh, but I played it like um, it was a very complex relationship. And we played it that it wasn't clear who was responsible for the the infertility or the reason that they didn't have the child. Mm. And, um, yeah, we played it like that, and it was very interesting, actually. Your monologue, Empty, has it's on YouTube, and it's had a great response from people saying, oh, this is, this is how I'm feeling, or you've completely understood what I'm going through. What's it like to read comments like that? overwhelmed actually because I didn't expect that response I just kind of I did it very quickly I just sat down I thought oh let's see what happens and it just tumbled out and I thought oh and I sat on it for a couple of days and I thought if I don't do it now I'm not going to do it so I did it and I tweeted it and then people started responding and I had a couple of friends who phoned up who said I've spent the whole afternoon crying uh, it just took me back to the time when I was having my fertility journey or uh, 
that person had since had a child. Mm. Another one said, you know, it just made her kind of think about the fact that she doesn't have a child. Or even voluntarily childless people have said, you know, that it's touched them. Um, so I think it's just because it's hit a nerve because we're all dealing with loss at the moment with COVID, loss of family members, loss of our freedoms. So I think it, it's just kind of landed in the water at the, at the right time, see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, how does it mimic your experience? Do you have children? No, I don't have children. And do you find... So when... Yeah, mm-hmm. go on. So uh, when I was in the Louvre in Sainsbury's, mm-hmm. I was 46, and I was coming to terms with the fact that it was now physically too late for me to have a child. Yeah. So when... So it was just... I remember when she just handed me this pregnancy test I remember thinking clearly wow what are the chances of, of this happening to me at this moment in time when this is the foremost issue in my mind I was going yeah. through a grieving process so um yes that that's really essentially my um, the emotional what's the word uh, starting point for the piece I suppose What's it like to, as a writer and an actress, I know that you you obviously fictionalise and you make it a character, but what's it like still to lay an element of yourself bare like that? But you know what? <laughs> I didn't feel like I was doing that when I was <laughs> doing it. That's why I've been yeah. so kind of surprised by the response of it. I was kind of, when you write well, you're kind of, it's almost like you're in a trance or you're channeling something, and that's... It doesn't happen that often, sadly. But when I was writing it, that's how I felt that was happening, and it was like I'd... I was... I thought, oh, so this character, who is she, and who's she talking to? Oh, she's talking to her sister, and where does she live? She And so I kind of put myself in, in her shoes, and I did three takes uh, of it. Um, and in the first two takes, I didn't cry, because actually, originally, I'd seen the ending as positive. I'd seen the ending as when she says it's empty. In her head, she's full because on some level, she's received this kind of, what's the word? Uh, what's the word? Um, not even, uh, virtual, not virtual, but kind of a kind of vicarious pregnancy from this girl. She's taken the emotional energy of that on her. But then the third time I did it, and then I just cried. And I think um, on some level you tap into the grief that I, because it is a grieving process and I, yeah. 10 years I've been grieving it and you, you accept it and you get on with your life and it's mm. just like any other grief. It doesn't mean you can't be happy, doesn't yeah. mean you can't be fulfilled. But every now and again, like if you lose a parent and suddenly you come across the other day, my mother-in-law died three years ago and in the post at her house, uh, old house, the her... Her bus pass arrived because somehow along the line nobody got the message that she died three years ago, mm. and I just burst into tears. Yeah. But on a day-to-day level, I'm not, you know, consciously grieving her. Okay. It's the same with when I was doing the monologue. It suddenly it clicked in. And I think that's what so many people will have responded to is that understanding that it's a sense of grief. Mm. that it's a sense of losing something that was almost never there in the first place and yet you've still lost it. I, th- I think we have, I think what we, because we, we project so much, as, mm. especially as women with the dolls, with, you know, we, uh, part of the whole learning process is to imagine things in your mind. I think we do create, even anybody who's had a child, they have created a fictional family in their head before they had them it's just human nature to do that Mm. and my mum in fact wrote a story when she was 12 in which there were three children and she described actually she had six children in the end but she described her first three children and their names more or less completely exactly so we so we do we are projecting into the future in our imaginations all the time and Mm. and and one of the tricks of acting is your brain doesn't... You have to trick your brain not to recognise the difference between a created reality and reality. Mm. And actually your brain 
can kind of shift between the two if that makes sense it does it's absolutely fascinating talking to you thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us about this um Pookie's monologue which is called Empty you can find on YouTube I uh, just listening to her there actually just really touched me so um I can imagine it's incredibly beautiful please do go check it out this is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Now, lots of us over lockdown picked up our stuff and went home. We went back to where we came from, possibly back to living with our parents or families, uh, turning down our London lives and heading for where we grew up. Well, our next guest has written a book about exactly that sort of situation. What happens when you have to accept that the life you've carved out for yourself in one place is not going to be the one you have going forward. Caroline O'Donoghue now joins us to talk about her new book, Scenes of a Graphic Nature. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Harriet. What a wonderful segue. I'm very impressed by how you've linked the the current situation with the book. I couldn't have done about it myself. I should implore Thank you to be you. on my staff. I mean, I need to implore you to be my constant bigger upper. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> tell us. I'm sorry, as if I had money for staff. And I have no idea. I've had a couple of wives. <laughs> it's a Saturday night. You are allowed. Tell us about Scenes of a Graphic Nature. What's it about? Well, Scenes of Graphic Nature, you actually summarised it really beautifully, um, but uh, it is about <laughs> a young woman called Charlie Regan, who um, she is a second generation immigrant, so her father is Irish, she's never been, she's from Essex, um, and but she sort of makes this documentary film about his early life, where he happens to have been the kind of one survivor of this very strange Irish um Accidents. There was there was a carbon monoxide uh, leak in his sort of childhood schoolhouse. Everyone died except for him, who was not at school that day. And so she's grown up with this like horrible, sto- horrible but very wow. compelling story. Like it's a very mm-hmm. obviously if you if you grow up with a story like that, it, it impacts you. Especially if you grow up creative. She makes a film about it. She ends up touring it in uh, Ireland with her best friend and collaborator Laura. And while she's there, I'm showing it at the Cork Film Festival. Somebody comes up to her and says that thing did not happen the way you you think it happened and uh what begins then is sort of a uh, sort of a long weekend that's a, of a discovery of legacy of where she comes from of, of finding out what actually happened which is kind of a conspiracy about 60 <laughs> years in the making <laughs> it sounds fantastic what inspired it it's funny. I, I mean, so I'm Irish and I've been living in London for almost mm-hmm. 10 years and kind of like my conversations with English people more than anything, because, you know, I, I've been here a long time. and I've had, mm-hmm. Most of my friends are English. In fact, most of them are being very loud in the other room right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, it's kind of you, you, you say that you're Irish people and they automatically have a very strong reaction to it. They automatically have this thing of like, I love Ireland. My dad's Irish. My mum's from Donegal. <laughs> they have this and they feel so emotional. And you kind of they have all this kind of this baggage going into it and you want to give them something back. And then, then I go, OK, so have you ever been? And they go, no. And then they you, <laughs> you say, well, you know, what do you love about it so much? And there's, oh, I just feel this connection. And I just find it so fascinating at this. This very small, very grey, very rainy island has managed to cast such a long cultural shadow. And I was kind of, what I always think when I have these conversations with people are, what would you still feel so close to Ireland if you were, if you knew the worst things, if you knew the the kind of the stuff that the church does, mm-hmm. the stuff that you know, so many such it's such a dark history the 20th century of ireland and um, it's such a knotted thing of what we've done to each other what the english have done to us and it's kind of yeah that's sort of what you know informed it really (laughs) i mean you i'm laughing because my mother whose mother is irish uh, so my grandma's irish my mother didn't go to ireland until she was i think in her late 50s and had, I mean, she came back and said, well, I just knew the second I got there, I knew I was home. She was in Dublin yes. for 48 hours. But she knew. Oh, my God. She absolutely God. knew. Of course um, she knew. But, but that is like, like, this is actually a conversation <laughs> had between two characters in the book. And it says, you know, if you feel that way about Ireland, it means Ireland has worked on you. Like, that is our job. <laughs> Nobody's going to come of their own volition. We It rains 340 <laughs> days a year. We have to create this sort of rich capital history of heritage for people otherwise they'd never come and we'd all starve <laughs> how do you feel
feel there is a sort of a legacy of Irish creatives in London and mm. carrying this myth of Ireland and your brilliant creativity and artistry and storytelling abilities with it. Do you feel a sort of do you feel a pressure as an Irish creative in London to be as creative as you possibly can be at all times? <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a pressure, but it's definitely a mantle to uphold. And what's so what's so um, cool, actually, about being an Irish woman right now mm. is that um, I think for a long time there was an association with Irish male creativity, the sort of your Joyce's and mm-hmm. Seamus Heaney and that kind of stuff. And obviously these are incredible um, artists who should be revered, but it's very, it's very male. It's very serious. It's quite rural. It's very dour. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but like now we have these incredible artists coming up all the time. You've got, you've got Sally Rooney, you've got mm-hmm. Nisha Dolan, you've got Sinead Gleason, you've got Sarah Maria Griffin. All these authors coming up. Tana French. I, I could name them forever, and they're all fucking women, you know. And what we're all becoming, I think, known for as a collective is just sort of, you know people who are able to take very serious contemporary topics with a bit of a wink do you know what I mean we're not gonna we're not gonna really flog a horse to death we're gonna tell you about contemporary feminist issues but we're also gonna have a joke in there I think that's why that's why we seem to be selling books at the moment (laughs) um how do you feel about your own kind of your own writing career trajectory because I knew you when you were starting out on the pool you wrote brilliant funny articles for the pool then you had your first novel and then it seems like this one has absolutely blown up is that what you expected life as a writer to be like well it's funny when you say blown up isn't it because I think when you're an author it's um it's so much about perception isn't Mm -hmm. it it's it's so much um about a sort of a social media presence that makes it look like everything is so successful and that you're on this very steady upward trajectory trajectory all the time well i'm sure you know yourself harry as, as a freelancer it you can you can spend all day no, long it's a roller coaster that, yeah it's a roller coaster and you really don't know what's happening day to day and you think you're the fraud but everybody else has it yeah. together and all that boring stuff but um yeah definitely i've had lots of ups and downs like for example early last year like 2019 um, was actually a much I know everyone's having a very stressful time with their careers right now but um, it, this for me it's been relatively tame compared to last year where um, within a month sort of the pool which had been my bread and butter mm-hmm. um, shut down the Times of Ireland um, which was sort of you know like Rupert Murdoch's Times mm-hmm. uh, but the Irish branch of it that shut down and that and that was my, my regular weekly column was there as well so I literally lost 100% of my income within a month and as well as I'm sure you, you know a lot of your listeners are probably yeah. quite um, women who are tuned into the internet and stuff uh, mm-hmm. the pool when it shut down it really left every it left everybody hungry do you know what I mean it didn't yeah. even pay it didn't pay its outstanding invoices or anything mm-hmm. um, which was somewhat contradictory to its uh, feminist ethos <laughs> yeah ethos exactly and so th- that was a really awful time and because as I'm sure you do as well mm-hmm. I, I was a freelancer and I had always obsessively squirreled money away for this exact occasion. I had about four grand in the bank and I was like, okay, I can either, this can either drip away over the next six months while I try to plug holes by pitching kind of random pieces to the Telegraph based on what Taylor Swift is doing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The classic of female journalists everywhere. Yes. The the classic (laughs) of female journalism, or I can kind of go for broke work on an idea I really feel proud of, make the conscious decision to blow through my savings while I do it <laughs> and just do it. And then what ended up happening was I sold a young adult series called All Our Hidden Gifts for mm. um, enough money that I can sort of afford to do just that for the next year yeah. and a half. <laughs> and so it was lo- it was such a wonderful moment of being like, okay, I put all of my, you know, if you imagine the casino, I put all my chips yeah. on red and it just, it just took and it was such a wonderful thing. But between all these victories there's so much uncertainty and so much poverty and like it's it's really quite stressful so you need quite a strong stomach to go through it I think I think you absolutely do and I think you know I was really tempted to say that a horrendous cliche there which was the luck of the Irish but there was no luck that was (laughs) you know that was a committed decision right because we've all had a book idea I have at least a book idea a day and I still scrabble around being like I'll just do this I'll do that and one day I'll get to that book and you actually made that decision to sit down and do it would that be your advice to would-be authors? Well, I don't know. I mean, I certainly can't. Um, I can't promise 
that anyone will have the level of luck <laughs> that I've had because you know what you know, yes it was hard work but it also is luck it's that thing of like mm. the idea I had just happened to match certain kind of commercial things that are in the works right now and made sense for a publisher yeah. for various reasons I can't advise on any on that but what I will advise on is that I think that people can tell when you don't care about what you're doing I think <laughs> when you sort of um, turn out stuff also as well is that like turning out stuff that you don't care about yeah. is the same amount of effort as doing something you care about do you know what I mean it's mm-hmm. like people always think with writers it's like oh why don't you just knock out a, a romance <laughs> novel why don't yeah. you just knock out a bit of this there's no knocking out it all takes time so you might as well do the thing that you believe in you know I think that's amazing advice Caroline thank you so much love talking to you Caroline O'Donoghue Scenes of a Graphic Nature is out now it's got the most amazing cover it's a great book go get it You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.